Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, here we go. Three, two, one. Oh, Ben, before we get started, let me jump to the ATM real quick. Hold on, let me get this, let me get this in here. All right, how much you need? Okay. All right. Uh, oh, okay, that should be enough for a, a show. Uh, yeah, I can, can I have $10 more? $10 more. I got to cover a bet uh, on the Good polls. Lord, hold on. <laughs> the spread. Uh, there we go. Thanks, right, there we go. Oh, good. That's good. I got to take, take care of that, that gambling obligation. Hey, did you know that Illinois has an average monthly revenue of over $100 million from recreational cannabis sales? It's true. And as of 2022, Chicago hosts an impressive 44 cannabis dispensaries. The Windy City is the perfect place for the cannabis convention. It's June 10th through the 11th, and it's brought to you by NECAN. The convention will be the largest gathering of the existing local medical cannabis industry and those getting in to the new adult use recreational market. The convention will showcase more than 100 companies, brands, and product lines. Denny's Doobies will not be in there. I tried. <laughs> Benny's bongs and Denny's doobies, not in there. We'll be outside in a van selling stuff. Again. <laughs> Again. <laughs> hey, there's also four full programming tracks running each day for medical, business, cultivation, and social justice, featuring dozens of expert speakers with practical knowledge and advice for attendees of all levels of experience. All are welcome. Go to kneecan.com slash Illinois. N-E-C-A-N-N dot com slash Illinois for information and to register. It is Thursday, April 28th, and this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Ben Jarofsky Show was brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and the Chicago Reader. Now your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Yeah, hello everybody, Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Gas Up Thursday, and here's why. Chicago City Council voted yesterday, 26 to 23, a very close vote, uh, to approve Mayor Lori Lightfoot's plan to give away gas money. It's all complicated in the city of Chicago. You know, it's like you got to apply. There could be a lottery. They don't actually give you the cash. They give you a card, which is good at gas stations, certain gas stations, not all gas stations, because some gas stations, apparently, I did not know this. I'm learning these new things about my beloved city of Chicago all the time, are in bad standing with the city. So your gas cards are not good there. But by and large, it's good at most gas stations, selected neighborhoods. They've got income eligibility requirements, which, by the way, I'm not really I don't know about these income eligibility requirements. I don't think they have like contacts with the uh, IRS to check up and make sure you're say, telling the truth. D, I actually took the deep dive. 
And I took a look at the application process and it merely states, and there's a, a little uh, line item there. How much money is your household income? So if you said just, I don't know, $10,000, who's to, who's to know? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's not like they're going to check. So, you know, uh, just a, like, a little uh, word of warning to the city of Chicago, whatever bureaucrat is job it is to check this. If you get an application from a man named Kenneth Kenny G. Griffin, and he says he's only earning $10,000 a year because he's looking for that gas money, deny it. If you got any questions, feel free to give me a call. Again, Kenneth Kenny G. Griffin. And another one called Bruce uh, Rauner. Uh. Anyway, before I go any further, I just uh, I I must say this. My beloved Bulls uh, went down to defeat last night uh, at the hands of the dastardly Milwaukee Bucks. Boo! Yeah, they're a good team. So I can still boo. Boo! I got a First Amendment free right D to boo if I want to. Right, Elon Musk? You're right. That's my <laughs> worst Elon Musk. I'm supposed to be like a, isn't he from Australia or something? New Zealand or you should, you know, you'd think I would know where he's from. He's powerful man in the world. Anyway, I think he's from Mars. A weird guy. Crown control tape, major time. Uh, and so anyway, my beloved Bulls went down to defeat. Uh, let's uh, pause. Da, 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 da. That's taps, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, their season has ended. Good job, Bulls. You kept me entertained during the really cold months of like January and early February. And then, you know, as we headed into March and April, boom, you were terrible. But I don't ask for much, do you? Just keep me entertained and diverted. Anyway, uh, thank you, Chicago Bulls. Uh, the guys looked awful last night, but, you know, I'm trying to be positive. Anyway, back to the gas up. So it's an interesting thing. Uh, it was a very close vote in the Chicago City Council. Uh, it was 26 to 23, as I said. Uh, it would have been, a, you know, very embarrassing for Mayor Lightfoot. That's, that's always the, how they phrase it here in Chicago. We are a weird city. It would be embarrassing uh, if her idea went down. Okay, it was. if it's a bad idea, that's more important than whether it's embarrassing to the mayor. We always accentuate the wrong things in the city of Chicago. It's sort of like, well, we don't want to embarrass our mayor. Mayor look bad because we want to give this notion that our mayors really are in charge. So we're going to vote for this dumb idea just to make the mayor look good. Be really embarrassing. You're, I, I don't know, Chicago. You kind of accentuate the wrong points sometimes. So anyway, a lot of objections. Uh, people voted against it because they said it's a gimmick. And uh, so do I think it's a gimmick? Yes. Of course it's a gimmick. It's an election year gimmick. Uh, <laughs> the mayor's trying to make it look like she cares about you people uh, while you turn around and vote for her. Duh. I mean, so we're going to vote for everything against everything because it's a gimmick? I don't know if that's a good enough reason not to vote for it. Is it good for the environment? A lot of people say it's bad for the environment to subsidize uh, the consumption of more gasoline. Absolutely. Great point there. It's terrible for the environment. We should all be riding bicycles, taking public transportation. Absolutely. But there's a lot of fear about crime in public transportation these days. So some people don't take the trains for that reason. And another thing is that a lot of times trains aren't in neighborhoods. You know, I mean, you want me to redo the whole story of extending the red line all the way to the far south side of Chicago? We talking the city of Chicago's been talking about doing that since Mayor Richard J. Daly, the first Daly. 
and they never did it. So it's like a huge gap south of 95th Street when it comes to the trains, public transportation. So a lot of people just drive a car because it's the fastest way to get from point A to point B. And, of course, we live in a country where we're absolutely addicted to our cars. You may ever think about that? So all of a sudden, we're going to take a stand. We're going to take a stand on this one, this issue. So, yeah, I I agree there's some validity to the accusations that it's a gimmick uh, and that it's not good for the environment. So now the question is, no duck and no dodge, Ben. What if you were Alderman Benny J from the 59th Ward? I just made it up. Uh, and you are in the Chicago City Council. How would you vote? I would vote yes. I, oh, absolutely yes. And here's why. Let's start by going explaining exactly why this giveaway was uh, proposed by Mayor Lori Lightfoot. We all know. This is a response to Willie Wilson, candidate Willie Wilson, perennial candidate Willie Wilson, Dennis's favorite mayoral candidate, without a doubt. I mean, there's like two people, but sure. <laughs> uh, without a doubt. Rayla. <laughs> Rayla. By the way, quickly wimped out. Oh, my God. Another first Arnie. Arnie Duncan wimps out. Then Michael Quigley wimps out. Michael Quigley announced today like the. The, the war in Ukraine is just far more pressing for him to deal with than be mayor of the city of Chicago. I'm not quite certain what impact whatsoever one congressman has on the war in Ukraine, but that was a creative excuse, if I ever heard one, for wimping out. You know why? Because Lori Lightfoot throws some sharp elbows. She's those elbows under the knee. Arnie Duncan goes, uh, uh-uh, I don't want any of that. And quickly did the same. I don't, I mean, you know, I don't know, D, being a congressman, it seems like a lot easier job than being mayor of the city of Chicago. So, you know what I'm saying? This sit back. And we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago. Harold Washington was really reluctant to give up his congressional seat. He was the congressman just, just had been elected first congressional district to run for mayor. He had just been reelected uh, for the first congressional district to run for mayor. He's like, why should I give this up? I am enjoying this. And the pressures he's faced as mayor and the opposition he faced from Burke and Verdoliak and all the other white people in this city. I, it, it, I do believe uh, it really took a toll on his health. So I understand why someone would be reluctant to give up a congressional seat to run for mayor. Uh, that said, quickly was a hockey player. You know, you figure like they go to the boards with a check. They're not going to worry about a little elbow. That apparently is. Uh, and so anyway, uh, Mike Quigley uh, has stepped down, but Willie Wilson is uh, still very much in the race and he's proposed to spend his own money uh, with gas giveaways. He's done it like three times, I want to say, correct me if I'm wrong. And uh, so Lori Lightfoot goes, oh, I can't look bad by having Willie Wilson give away gas cards. I got to give away gas cards, too. So, yeah, obviously, it's a p- total political election year gimmick. And obviously, uh, it was created uh, to um, undercut Willie Wilson's campaign. Uh, Willie Wilson is clearly, unlike Arnie Duncan and Mike Quigley, not afraid of an elbow or two. He's not going to back out of the race because uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot uh, has some sharp barbs. So you got to give him credit for that. But. I want to applaud Willie Wilson for doing something that puts money into people's pockets. And this is going to tie into the conversation I'm about to have with the great Miles Kamflassen uh, in just a moment. 
uh, in these times, editor, uh, writer, and uh, lefty thinker extraordinaire. I've been really thinking about this. We're going to be talking about this on the larger, more macro uh, issues in terms of getting involved, the president getting involved with Amazon workers and the president getting involved with uh, to cancel student debt. And I wrote about this about a week ago. I talk about this all the time. I don't want to be captive to the Democratic Party. As a lefty, uh, a New Deal Democrat, whatever you want to call me, I don't want to be captive to these neoliberal Rahm Emanuel, David Axelrod, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, who vetted the whole thing, afraid of their shadows, Democrats, who are in Democrats in name only, dinos, who always undercut whatever values they're supposed to have because they're worried about a swing voter in Virginia or suburban Milwaukee. I'm like, I really don't want to be held captive to them. But what are my choices, people? Take a look at the Republican Party. They're like, well, Sam Holloway comes on the show, calls them fascists. I'm a little reluctant to to use that word because like real fascism is a we're not we're not there yet but they're like wannabe fascists in my opinion there's no way i could be be a part of the republican i'm stuck unless i just don't want to vote or vote green party or what have you and so i'm always saying republicans show me something anything that might induce me to vote for you and so Willie Wilson does a giveaway. He puts, essentially puts money in ordinary people's pockets. He, he just did what our government does all the time to giant corporations. Willie Wilson. And as a result, Lori Lightfoot had to match him. Lori Lightfoot supported a $1.3 billion giveaway to Sterling Bay to build Lincoln Yards. She wasn't literally the mayor at the time. She could have fought it. By not fighting it, she essentially supported it. Okay? So when they give $1.3 billion, I don't hear anybody calling it a gimmick. I don't hear anybody saying it's bad for the environment. I don't hear anybody saying it's really unfair that one ward gets $1.3 billion and the rest of the city just can crumble into a giant pothole. It's called... Economic development, good for Chicago because the Chamber of Commerce is signed on, because corporate Chicago is signed on, because uh, some of the unions have signed on who workers are going to work in the projects. I never hear anybody, all the arguments, legitimate arguments that they raised against the gas giveaway. (laughs) I never hear them get raised when it's a giant handout to a developer to gentrify an already gentrifying neighborhood. It's interesting when they give something pennies really to ordinary people, poor people, working people, the outrage, the concern, the opposition. But when they just dole out billions to millionaires and billionaires, not much debate. They go along with it. So I'm encouraged that in this one little piece of sand in a giant beach of help for ordinary people. It's like the one thing I can think of that the Chicago City Council has done 
maybe Miles can uh, point out I'm wrong here that they did something else over the last year or two that would help somebody other than a rich guy, you know, in the city of Chicago. And they, they're, you, oh, they're in torment and turmoil. Should we vote for it? I don't know. It's a gimmick. It's not fair. It's bad for the environment. Oh, that's unbelievable. Oh, I, guys, I'm glad you care about the environment. It's just interesting that the only time I ever hear anybody raise an issue that's bad for the environment is where you're going to help some poor guy. I don't know if Miles agrees with anything I just said. It's okay if he doesn't because I encourage uh, different viewpoints uh, on the show. So I'm going to now welcome Miles Conflassen, the pride and joy of Whitney Young High School and uh, writer, editor extraordinaire for In These Times uh, and great lefty thinker back to the show. Welcome back, Miles. Thank you so much, Ben. Happy to be here. All right. I have a lot to talk to you about stuff that you put on the agenda and I'm fascinated by it actually. So I'm really glad you suggested it. One is uh, the whole issue of Joe Biden uh, and uh, canceling student debt, which he should have done the day he was sworn in. And then the other one is Bernie. Senator Bernie Sanders taking a strong stand uh, against Amazon for the way it's beating up its employees and putting a little pressure on Biden. So we'll get into uh, all that. Uh, But before I do, I have to ask you, if you were an alderman, if you were Alderman Miles from the fictitious 53rd Ward uh, on the southwest side of Chicago, your uh, home turf, would you have voted for Mayor Lori Lightfoot's gas giveaway or would you have voted no? Thank you for opposing the question, Ben. Uh, as no- a non-elected official, I will uh, duck and dodge, as you often uh, point out, and uh, you know, take umbrage with others doing. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I would propose amendments to it, honestly, because I think that the I of course agree. Any time we can provide direct material support, financial support to low-income Chicagoans, uh, low-income people anywhere, uh, that's the job of the government to you know lift all boats, create more um, equity and a dignified life, uh, specifically for those who are you know at the lowest rungs of our economic ladder. And that's ultimately what this policy would be designed to do: is just to you know help people pay off. Um, gas bills at a time of rising inflation, high energy costs. We've talked about uh, on this show about, you know, the cause of some of those uh, increases in the pump prices. And it has a lot more to do, I would say, with oil company profiteering than it does with, you know, the specter of inflation um, or, you know, overspending from the government on social programs, as many conservative critics would uh, claim. And so, you know, there's a broader issue there of like to rein in the rise in gas prices. We actually need to take a look at how, you know, the oil companies have leverage over our economic system in this country and we need to put some pressure on on them to do that obviously the chicago city council i don't think is the body most positioned to do that um but i do think that we need to i would be more in favor of just sending a check to people you know in terms of like what you know to 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 help them out and i know there's pilot programs around you know some universal income projects that are that are going on in the city but if we're going to send gas cards you know we might as well send because some people don't 
take, you know, cars to work. They, they either take public transit or, you know, and I know there's reduced CTA cards, but some people bike, some people walk, some people, you know, work from home. That doesn't mean that they don't deserve a boost, you know, and I think you're right to point out that this is clearly a response to the Willie Wilson uh, uh, plan to, you know, give away free gas and our mayor did not want to be seen as being outlived, you know, outplayed by a political rival. So hatched this plan. I'm not against it. Like I'm not against sending, um, uh, financial support to working people. And I, and I'm not even really worried about the fact that this is, you know, going to ultimately be money that's going to go to the gas companies. And that's ultimately worse for the environment. It's propping up fossil fuels. I mean, I think those critiques are, uh, legitimate, but at the same time, in the immediate term, I do think people really need help. Where I would say that there should be an amendment, though, is to have attached this to some uh, having the government play some role, including our, our local city government, in providing some more regulation um, over over things like you know the way that gas companies operate in, in our city. They're you know paying taxes on land and so forth. Also, we need to have further investment in public transit in the city. I think there is, you know, we can add on some funding to support uh, more bus lines, especially to the South and West sides of the city that are underserved by public transportation um, and do other things to help to, you know, make sure that this isn't just a one-time payment. You know, people are going to need th- th- those gas cards are going to run out and people are still going to need help. And this is not really like a, uh, long-term solution to a long-term problem. And so I would say that it on its face, I, you know, I'm not against the uh, idea of giving gas cards to people. uh, But I think that that should be paired with some other more consequential um, action on the city level. Uh, I agree with that point. And uh, I'd say, I don't think this is the last giveaway we see. Wait, this one goes through. I just want to make sure I get it right. I think it goes into September. Uh, and then they're going to see where gas cards are. If uh, by September, yeah, we'll be heading into really heading into uh, the mayoral race, uh, the season of the mayoral campaign. And I'm sure Willie Wilson will come up with another uh, giveaway. And then Mayor Lori Lightfoot will have to respond. <laughs> Uh, in order to cut it. So there may be more. Uh, in general, I would say, I agree with your, your main point, put it an amendment on any giveaway. Uh, so for instance, uh, the $1.3 billion giveaway to Sterling Bay uh, for Lincoln Yards, which was completely unnecessary uh, and um, would not even be in my top 50 lists of projects. The top 100 list of projects that we should subsidize uh, should have been a, uh, accompanied by, I don't know, maybe a $1.3 billion giveaway to the citizens of Chicago. Just give us the checks that you're talking about. If you're going to waste money, if you have so much money, you could just throw it away on Sterling Bay, then just throw it away on us. Uh, and that gets to the main point I want to make, Miles, as we uh, trans, uh, transition into let's do college debt first. I started by saying I'm always looking for my Democrats to like take a freaking stand and they're so cowardly. They're so afraid of their shadow, Miles. They're afraid, like, they'll be called tax and spend Democrats and that they're driving up uh, the debt, which, of course, no Republican ever cares about when they're giving away tax breaks and the debt goes skyrocketing. So why are you intimidated by Republican rhetoric? I do not know. I 
want you to take the deep dive on this one. Michael Girardi, uh, a dear friend of this show, has taken issue with many of our uh, guests and myself. <laughs> uh, with with uh, I sent you a copy of the, the text he sent. I've been putting this issue to every guest who comes on uh, to deal with it directly. He's tired of the rhetoric that we he hears from lefties like myself about taxing the rich. Instead, to boil it all down, he says, put money into the pockets of ordinary people. Show ordinary people that you're doing something for them. And this will get into the Bernie uh, issue. Show support for union organizing because that is really the most effective way to help ultimately uh, the working class. So I agree with a lot of what Michael Girardi has to say. I think it's a really telling criticism. The most obvious point is student debt. Miles, help me out on here. Why don't you take the, take us, lead us through this. Joe Biden campaigned on the notion that he would retire student debt. He would give kids, kids a break on the amount of money they owe uh, to, for college. Uh, he's not come through on that in any meaningful way again because he can't get support from Republicans, so it won't pass Congress. And he won't do it on his own because, well, I'll love to hear your theory. I have many theories why he won't do it on his own. But this is an obvious example, in my humble opinion, Miles, of where – Joe Biden and the Democrats can set up Republicans and bankers and anybody else who's against this as an enemy of something that would help ordinary people, and they don't do it. I find it baffling uh, as a policy move, and I find it baffling as a political move. Take us through this, Miles. There's currently over $1.7 trillion in student debt that is held by over 40 million Americans. So this is not some, you know, isolated issue that affects some small demographic. Um, it's uh, really the, a huge economic strain that not only does it mean that people don't aren't able to pay because they're, you know, m- mired in debt and are stuck, you know, with bills on bills that come every month, but it also means that they cannot uh, build wealth because they can't purchase assets in this country. I mean, wealth building, the entire idea of the American dream initially has been based on uh, home ownership or some type of, you know, asset wealth generation. And the way you obtain those assets is through getting loans. And the only way you get those loans is if you have good credit scores. And the way you have good credit scores is if you have low levels of debt. And at a time when, yeah, there's over 40 million Americans holding student debt, that's a huge strain on the ability of um, those who have it to uh, reach any higher levels of wealth. And you'll see when you look at statistics around those who have the highest levels of debt, it's often those with the lowest levels of wealth and um, rather than income. I mean, there are a lot of people with high levels of income with a lot of student debt, you know, doctors and lawyers, things like that. But when it comes to wealth, which is really, you know, what is intergenerational and what, you know, builds people up to higher uh, rungs on that economic ladder, I think it's quite clear that the debt is really a critical issue. And you're right to point out that uh, President Biden campaigned specifically on uh, forgiving $10,000 of student loan debt for all borrowers 
um, along with select relief for certain borrowers on top of that. Um, right now we're seeing, as you know, tuition costs at uh, schools are ballooning. You know, you've had kids go through college. You've seen what's happened over the past 10 years. The amount of student loans increased over 100 percent. Tuition's gone up by 30, I think 30, over 35 percent um, over between 2008 when I graduated from uh, undergraduate and 2018. So over those 10 years. Um, and, you know, people will point out that uh, that this is an issue for the educated, right? That this is somehow a bailout for, it's what critics would say, it's a bailout for educated people. But what that misses is that, you know, nationwide black women, disproportionately, they owe more student loans than any other group. They have over $40,000 uh, in student loans on average. Um, and that's why, you know, and especially when it comes to uh, teachers who we would call, you know, certainly part of the working class, they require a college degree to get a teaching certificate. And the average teacher has um, over $58,000 in debt, which is about what a starting salary is at CPS, at Chicago Public Schools, you know, and that's just like the average teacher. And of course, um, if you look demographically, um, black teachers and teachers of color are disproportionately burdened. Um, one in five black teachers owes more than $100,000 in debt. And, you know, when we look at, uh, you know, on a more macro scale over the past four decades, because I think a lot of the people that are pol in policymaking, um, certainly those in the United States Senate, they might have graduated college decades ago. And that was, uh, you know, a different paradigm than uh, today, since, you know, over the past four decades, there's been a 170% increase, 170% increase in the cost of college, because we've seen this incredible rise in tuition and young people earning young people's earnings have only increased by under 20%. So how are you going to, where do you, you know, square that circle? It's all debt. And that's the debt that is held um, by borrowers across this country. And what we should also point out is that 40% of those that hold debt never even got a degree. So they didn't even get the benefit from, you know, the investment that they made by accruing all this debt. They didn't even get a degree out of it. So they can't, you know, take advantage of career opportunities that would come out of it. So this is the situation facing um, Joe Biden and the Democratic Party right now. They made a promise, they campaigned on it, and they didn't do it. And so politically, what does that mean? It means if you look at uh, Joe Biden's approval ratings, if you look at his support when he got elected in 2020, um, it was overwhelmingly due to the support of younger people. Younger demographics went um, for Joe Biden at a massive scale. And um, since then, uh, that uh, dynamic has completely flipped. Um, younger people, uh, Biden's approval rating among younger people, like people under 30, that's has plunged uh, over 50 points since Inauguration Day. Um, and now it's older people that support Biden and the younger people are abandoning him. So, you know, and, and as a result of this, the, the, the Democrats are freaking out. They should freak out. And I, I, I took notes on everything you said because... I there's points that you made that I would love to uh, elaborate on. And one is when you start to talk about what critics say, and this gets to the heart of one of my great frustrations with the Democrats and love to get your thoughts on this. My basic point is who cares what the critics say? 
And this, I, I go back to the 2019 uh, presidential debates, the Democratic presidential debates, the good old days. You were on the show. We, we would talk about the different candidates. You were a Bernie guy. And nobody who came on my show, we're all lefties, basically. Nobody who came on my show like Pete Buttigieg, who was uh, running uh, as the like ultra, ultra moderate. And, and he came up with the most cockamamie, BS argument against forgiving student debt or against the free college. No, it was free college, but it was the same basic argument. It's not fair to um, students who are getting uh, like uh, uh, going through trade school. If you just give the debt to if you just give make college free for students who are going to a regular college or junior college or university. And I'm like, well, I got an easy way to deal with that. Make trade school free. <laughs> well, you know, that's the dumbest reason I've ever heard to be against something that's good for society. It's not the pool of people who benefit from it. It's not great enough. But see, Democrats don't think that way. As soon as there's criticism, they run. They scurry. And so, Miles, it's like, I would think Joe Biden would want to take a page from Trump. And the, Trump didn't run from criticism. He engaged it. So if people are saying to Joe Biden, you're this is uh, you're wrong to say. Uh, forgive all the student debt above fifty thousand dollars and below, if Joe Biden were to say, look what they're trying to do, I'm trying to help you and they won't let me help you. I think the young people would be like with Joe Biden. If Joe Biden's trying to put fifty thousand dollars effectively in your pocket, going back to the city council and Willie Wilson. Who's going to be against that other than Pete Buttigieg, okay? One guy. <laughs> Pete Buttigieg. You know what I'm saying? It just – why do Democrats, they run, they scurry like little rabbits. They're like Arnie Duncan in the mayoral race. One elbow from Lori Lightfoot and they're out of the race. Why Why are Democrats like that? Help me out, Miles, on this one because I find it so frustrating. Yeah, or Mike Quigley for that matter. Uh, uh, yeah. I think that there's um, learned helplessness at the core of democratic policymaking because, you know, there's a fear that any action will spur some negative response. And so therefore it's better to just, you know, hold the line and keep the, you know, current state of affairs, the current status quo running. And, you know, it's the, the, all the inertia is for the status quo basically. And I think that that just dominates democratic uh, thinking on, on, you know, the legislative level. Um, And that, and certainly within uh, the Biden white house when it comes to this issue, because, you know, you pointed out $50,000 in debt, that would be incredible. You know, that would massively change. It would free people from this burden. Um, Biden hasn't even mentioned that. He campaigned on $10,000, far less. Um, If you remember, as we talked about in the 2020 primary, Bernie Sanders campaigned on canceling all debt for everybody, every cent of it. Um, So, but that's obviously, you know, whatever, the um, Overton window is shrunken down by Biden down to $10,000. And even that, um, it sounds like the plan, his plan would uh, means test it effectively, you know, put income thresholds on how you administer that program, which we know anytime, you know, a program is taken and means tested, that results in far less people, even those who would be eligible, being able to receive the benefit because it adds this whole other layer of bureaucracy 
um, to the system. So, um, and even that, I think that's probably the best possible outcome at this point because of how limited the president's um, openness has been on this issue. And, you know, the reason we're talking about this right now is because Biden held a caucus meeting this week with Democratic lawmakers where he signaled some openness to making moves on this issue of student debt. Today, he gave an interview where he said um, it would not be $50,000. It would be, you know, far less than that. Um, and uh, said he would have more information on that in the coming weeks, which is basically what they've been saying forever. You know, when you, you started by saying he should have done this day one, there was pressure early on in his administration to take action on the campaign promises he made. And what he did is he did what politicians always do. He set up like a commission, basically. He tasked his education department with writing a memo to look into whether he had authority to do this, because, of course, as with any of these policies, it's very convenient for um, Biden to claim he just doesn't have the votes for any of this. You know, that, as you've said, Republicans would block um, legislation, and therefore there's no way to do it. Whereas he's already canceled student debt. I mean, that's what people, I think, miss. Both tr Trump did it before him, uh, and Biden already canceled a billion dollars in federal student loan debt um, by those who were defrauded by for-profit universities So he's sh and through executive action. So he's shown that he has the authority. He's already done it. It's just a matter of using that authority on a much wider scale. And that's what um, people are pushing for. You know, young people, certainly activist groups like the um, Debt Collective are putting huge pressure on Biden to follow through on this. Because for young people, I mean, two of the most critical issues are uh, student debt. And that's because if you look as, as generationally, as the younger you get, um, if you look at Gen Z, there's much higher levels of people who are going to college and who are uh, accruing this debt. So, of course, the younger you are, you're more likely to care about this issue because it's going to affect you personally. Um, so there's that issue and climate, the issue of climate change, because young people realize that uh, the climate impacts are going to uh, impact their lives the most uh, of, of anybody on this planet right now. And those are issues where we've seen almost zero action from uh, the administration. So that's why there's so much... Um, uh, pressure being being put on uh, on Biden to do this, and yet I'm not super confident that he's going to follow through on it because, as you know, we've talked about. There's just so much hemming and hawing, uh, non clarity on the direction. Like if they were going to do this, you'd think that they would have come into office and done it quick and gotten people you know excited about the Democrats rather than just losing, as I said, like 50 points since Inauguration wow. Day and youth support, and now trying to do something to kind of rally the troops ahead of what looks to be a pretty disastrous midterms. Um, and I think that if you're going to do this, I do, you know, what I, I agree we shouldn't think too much about what the critics say, but um, politically that, there is an argument, you know, that this won't be popular. But if you look at all the polling, it's canceling student debt is incredibly popular. It has a majority support across uh, across various parties. It's not just Democrats. Uh, one in five Republicans say they would consider voting for a Democrat if they canceled student loan debt. So I'm not as worried about like the political consequences of this, but much like I talked about with the uh, gas card situation, I do think it would be helpful to pair a program like student debt cancellation with something to deal with the skyrocketing 
um, student loan, uh, student tuition that um, that that uh, is paid out because that's really the fundamental problem. You know, there's studies that have been done that would show within five to ten years that 1.9 trillion of student debt would reaccumulate, you know, after now, even if it was all canceled now, just because of how much people are going to have to pay. So there has to be some more structural solutions, I think, to change the way that um, college tuition is uh, administered in this country. And I think one of the ways to do that, I would argue, is by making public college free. Um, That would provide a different option that would kind of, you know, set a floor. And I think other universities would have to change their behavior as a result of that. But um, that doesn't seem to be on offer right now. The most, I think, uh, critical thing is to just push forward and say, you know, Biden campaigned on this. This isn't some pie in the sky idea. This is his agenda. Like this is what he ran on. So I uh, really hope that that is uh, something the administration is taking seriously and does follow through on. All right. Uh, so I dismissed the opposition uh, from people like Pete Buttigieg uh, as irrelevant and uh, some kind of manufactured uh, argument to, I don't know, to make themselves uh, less frightening to uh, a swing voter uh, in suburban Virginia. Let's get at the issue of who, what interests would be against Joe Biden or are against Joe Biden? Because I presume that there's uh, pressure against him from some sector uh, that does not want to see student debt forgiven. Now, the thing that the, the obvious answer to that question is, well, the people who are owed the money, which would probably be banks, <laughs> uh, so is talk a little bit about the pressure uh, that the Democrats are facing from the industries that don't want student debt uh, forgiven because they want that money. Go ahead, Miles. Well, I kind of agree that there certainly are powerful forces that are opposed to this. Um, but in terms of a constituency, it's more the uh, Republican Party that is seems to be aligned against it. And it's specifically people like Mitt Romney that are speaking out and saying that this is a giveaway, that this is bribing voters, you know, the usual kind of complaints you would see. Um, because the way that... Uh, such a program would be administered and has been in the past. I mean, I mentioned this previous action taken by the Biden administration to cancel a billion dollars in student debt um, is that this is debt um, that is held by the federal government. So, you know, 90, almost 95% of the student debt that exists, at least over 90% is currently held by the federal government. Um, And this would be effectively wiping that out. And so the actual criticism isn't that, you know, it's not going to take the money away from the banks because the banks basically already are, you know, guaranteed their investment. They're going to get it regardless. It's just that it's backed by the federal government. Like when you get a, you know, a federal Stafford loan or something, well, the money is actually held and secured by the government. So it would be wiping that out on the federal level. It wouldn't mean that the banks are necessarily hurt. And if anything, it would mean that the schools are the schools benefit from it because they're going to get, you know, that amount paid out. Um, there's criticism against that, you know, saying that universities themselves need to face some type of restructuring because of how much money they're spending on administration and things like that. But I don't think that um, it's a, it's a case of like, 
you know, this would be taking money away from the financial sector or anything like that. It's actually a much easier political issue on the Democrats part because it's not going to, you know, cause uh, outrage on Wall Street necessarily. It would actually probably help Wall Street because people would suddenly have more money in their pockets and be able to buy things like, you know, houses and stocks and securities and all the things that we want to keep, you know, uh, uh, the economy moving. So, yeah, I think that there's an array of forces around this issue, but it's unfortunately the, uh, the ones that are pushing for it the hardest are the ones with the least amount of political power, you know, the grassroots organizing groups that are um, demanding that uh, this debt be forgiven. You know, uh, I tried. I tried to come up with like a more or less legitimate reason why Democrats and even my reasons weren't legitimate. I'm just like, what would motivate them? Uh, And then I'm now at the uh, conclusion, conclusion, Miles, we'll move to Amazon. Uh, in a bit, but I just want to finish this one up. I'm now I've reached this conclusion that the only reason uh, Democrats or the the driving reason that Democrats are afraid to do this uh, is they're such cowards about uh, Republican criticism. If they're holding back because they're worried about what Mitt Romney says, it's that just what's the point? You know what I'm saying? What is the freaking point? Mitt Romney's on the other side. Mitt Romney's of the world don't want this money forgiven because they want that money spent on other things that would more directly benefit them. It's just like in the city of Chicago, the way we divvy up a budget. Some people get more, some people get less. And so uh, either that, Miles, or um, there's just a faction of the Democratic Party, and this is heading into Dr. Freud country, that despises people like you and me so much that if we're for it, they're against it. I kind of sometimes think that's where we're at with something like this. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, uh, Yeah, I ahead. agree with you. I do think, I think that there's another, you know, I would say it's more legitimate and that it speaks to uh, – kind of human nature issue of having uh, some being worried about there being resentment because many people have chosen not to go to college and don't hold student debt that they would be you know left out of this program effectively because they don't have student debt. Um, and there's plenty of people that paid off their student loans or didn't take it in the first place, you know, and that, and, and that's what the Mitt Romney types are speaking to. They're saying this is unfair because it's going to benefit the people who were lazy or uh, not serious or not responsible and wound up with this huge uh, amount of debt. Um, as I said, it's 40 million people. It's not like a small constituency. It's, it's a huge swath of America. But regardless, that's the criticism is that this is um, hurting people that have already paid uh, because they are not able to benefit and they won't get um you know, to take advantage of this program. I would say for one, on a personal level, I've been paying student loans for 14 years and I still, you know, many months it's more in student loan payment than I pay in my uh, rent, you know, to live in my apartment just because of how much debt I accumulated and I'm still paying it off and, you know, I've paid tens of thousands uh, many tens of thousands of dollars back in debt. And I don't care. I want it. I want to see everybody's debt, you know, relieved because I think that it's a burden that debtors deserve to be free of. So, you know, as just a, a human example of that, I think that it's, it's, 
pretty clear that that's a strange logic to think like, oh, the people that have already paid are going to be mad and resentful and this would be unfair to them. The other, uh, you know, response to that criticism, I think, is that any, you know, advance, progressive advance in society comes on, you know, after other people have faced a different set of uh, circumstances. You know, we didn't, people worked longer than an eight hour day before we, you know, implemented an eight hour day. But it's not like we were screwing the people that work 12 hours by getting people to only have to work eight hours. You know, it's not like people that didn't get social security before we implemented social security were going to be like outraged mad. That's progress. Like that's how, that's how it happens. You know, you work towards building a better society and better social policy and programming in order to help people uh, in the future live better and more dignified lives. It's not about, you know, everybody just getting theirs. And that's, it's such an antisocial way of, of looking at how people view problems. So yeah, that's what I would say to, um, to, to the Mitt Romney's. The world. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I know. And I hear what you're saying, the resentment factor. And that again is what, uh, what Pete Buttigieg uh, was getting at. And I didn't buy it when he said it. I don't buy it when Mitt Romney gets that I understand. I've been at parties where people, I've had a few to, they didn't even have a few to drink. I paid mine. I paid mine. <laughs> I'm like, okay, good for you. Uh, you. You want a cookie? You know, I mean, I'm sorry, man. This is a, this is a huge obligation. It's tying down our economy. My, I would say Miles is a micro example. If he had that money free to spend it on something other than gives, giving it to back that student debt lord knows what he would buy you know he'd uh it would be in hand more food at the local grocery store he would invest it in the economy so you so at some point miles the dems gotta live with the fact that there will be people who oppose the programs they espouse yeah, but there's uh, also going to be plenty of people that benefit from them. Exactly. Also, I would, I, I, and, and I would try to get my hands on some bold season tickets, I think, if I would have had those tens of thousands of dollars back. I'd, I'd, I'd cut you into my package. Oh, God, they just jacked our tickets up. But, yeah, that's an example. We'd give the money to the Chicago Bulls or the Chicago Sky, for that matter, uh, or to Paul for their basketballs. Anyway, uh, all right, uh, let's move over to uh, Bernie uh, Bernie Sanders, who uh, I must uh, acknowledge, as I always say, I voted for him twice. I'm two for two with Bernie on the ballot. Uh, he's he's tied with Barack Obama in percentage, and they're two radically different uh, politicians, uh, Miles. Every time I've seen Barack Obama's name on a ballot, and this includes Democratic primaries, I've voted for him. Every time. And I spent half of my time wailing that damn. And yet <laughs> I've, I, he's at the same percentage of Bernie, 1,000. They're each batting 1,000. Uh, but I uh, really have a lot of respect for Bernie. Uh, he's really uh, he's elevating the, the push uh, on behalf of Amazon workers who are trying to union unionize. And I, I just think the union movement is such a fundamental uh, uh, tool to break down some of the inequities that plague our country, which I think are the really the fundamental problems we face uh, a strong union movement. I'm not saying every union's perfect. I'm not saying I agree with every union. Lord knows I don't. Uh, but I just think overall 
we'd be a lot better off if workers uh, had collective bargaining agreements that protected them and gave them a voice uh, in the larger discussions of something like student debt. So talk a little bit, get people up to date on uh, what Bernie Sanders uh, is finally criticizing Joe Biden, actually, uh, on the whole issue of Amazon's fierce resistance to attempts by workers uh, to form unions. Take it away. We uh, talked before on this show, and I'm sure listeners are familiar with the successful campaign to organize uh, Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, New York, the JFK eight warehouse really historic victory. It was the first union at the company in um, in the nation. And uh, they've rightly been celebrated um, across the spectrum, you know, by labor unions, political um, leaders. I think it's like over 60 Democrats now have come out in support of Amazon workers organizing. We've seen uh, even President Biden himself gave a speech talking about collective bargaining rights and said, Amazon, look out, here we come, basically kind of like threatening. Of course, the next day, his press secretary walked that back and basically said, you know, oh, we stay neutral and all this stuff. But, uh, but there's been rhetorical support for uh, the success of Amazon workers. And we can't overstate how uh, important that victory was because Amazon is uh, going to be the biggest retailer in the country this year, um, overtaking Walmart. It also obviously is a huge um, logistics business in this country and has basically become a utility. Every company uh, and agency and institution basically works through some product that's owned by Amazon. Um, and its CEO, Jeff Bezos, is also, you know, Whole Foods, Washington Post, many elements of our lives are tied up in uh, in this company somehow. So uh, this is a real important time for the labor movement, I think, to take advantage of the fact that there's a lot of energy, there's a lot of excitement. Legislatively, there's been um, a lot of stalling of progressive uh, policies, you know, the Build Back Better Act has basically been killed by Joe Manchin, the PRO Act, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, which was the Democrats' centerpiece labor reform bill, has also basically been um, completely stalled and looks dead as well, although there was a lot of excitement for it um, last year. So the question is then, how can people in power use that power to help make, you know, the chances for organizing Amazon easier for workers, help to compel collective bargaining, because that is, um, as a result of the NLRA and you know, labor legislation we already have on the books, that's the job of the government, is to support and encourage collective bargaining. So it's not as if that's some kind of activist government move. That's literally what the government is charged with doing, is supporting this. Um, and Joe Biden said on the campaign tra- trail, much like he promised to cancel 10,000 student debt, he said uh, that he was going to uh, institute a multi-year um, debarment for employers that uh, oppose unions uh, through legal tactics and make sure that federal contracts, because obviously the federal government is a massive source of income for uh, for corporate America for various companies through these contracts, Biden said he would make sure that those federal contracts only go to employers who sign neutrality agreements um, so that they won't oppose unions or run anti-union campaigns. That is a clear, you know, uh, uh, 
that that's that stands in opposition to how Joe Biden has run his administration because uh, Amazon is currently set to continue to receive this ten billion dollar federal contract um, through the National uh, Security Agency, the NSA, to run a cloud computing system. Um, some some uh, of your listeners probably are familiar with this and remember it from. Uh, under the Trump administration, this big Jedi program, because this was the one that um, Trump was, it was originally going to go to Amazon and Trump actually pulled it to send it to, to give it to Microsoft because he was mad at Jeff Bezos for running negative stories in the Washington post. So he had his own kind of petty reasons for uh, trying to pull this contract from Amazon. But anyway, when Biden got back into office, that changed hands and the contract was awarded to, uh, to Amazon. Meanwhile, uh, we've seen that uh, federal agencies have fined Amazon dozens of times now um, in, in recent years for a range of offenses, not just um, workplace violations, but safety hazards, all kinds of things. Um, injury rates are, are growing, and the company we know spent at least $4.3 million on anti-union consultants, which I've talked about last time, a huge anti-union campaign. So all of those things are in violation of what Biden said would be necessary for companies to receive federal contracts from the U.S. government. So in comes Bernie. Basically, this is now Bernie Sanders, who spoke with um, Amazon labor union leaders this past weekend, alongside Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Sarah Nelson, the head of the flight attendants union, a number of other labor leaders. They all spoke out in support of Amazon workers organizing in Staten Island because there's another warehouse there, um, the LDJ warehouse, that's about to uh, start voting on their own union election, I think, next week. Um, so he was out in support of that. So he's been doing work to kind of rally up support for this um Union drive, but I pointed to earlier, there's been a lot of rhetorical support. Now, uh, Bernie Sanders is trying to take that rhetorical support and make it an actual um, point of leverage to push the uh, federal government to follow through on Biden's claim and pull that contract unless Amazon stops its anti-union behavior and basically say, you know, if you're going to, if we're going to keep paying out $10 billion to this company that's engaging in union busting, then um, we've got to apply some pressure to them and make sure that they change their behavior. If we can't pass a protecting the right to organize act, um, that would basically outlaw these type, the type of illegal union busting, and um, captive audience meetings, then we need to make sure that they can't get these federal contracts. Um, and so that's the fight that's going on right now. Next week, there's going to be a hearing around this. Um, Sanders already sent a letter to Joe Biden in the White House. And we haven't seen this. I mean, I've been you know around for a little while. You've been around a long time. This is very unusual to have like a sitting senator call out the Democratic administration for not standing up enough for union rights and demanding that they take legitimate federal action to follow through on their principles. We remember Joe Biden claimed to be the most pro-union president in history. Um, He styled himself after uh, FDR. And yet 
we're continuing to see different actions, uh, you know, in word than in deed um, when it comes to his administration. So I think that this is a really uh, critical issue and it's not getting much coverage. I mean, most people probably didn't hear about this, probably not going to hear about it in the Washington Post. Um, that's for sure. But it's still, uh, I think, important that we we talk about this uh, uh, this stuff because it's, you know, this, it, it, you know, to that Michael Girardi point about like the labor movement being kind of a future of where um, we should put our faith in kind of changing society for the better. Well, this is a strategic node in building that labor movement is the um, campaign at Amazon. And so any effort we can uh, push through that would to make that organizing easier, I think is something that um, folks that believe in workers' rights should really take seriously. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and it's tied to uh, forgiving a student debt uh, because there will be opposition. You know, there will definitely be opposition uh, if Joe Biden were to take a really strong stand on behalf of union organizing and, you know, a past legislation that would make it easier. You know, there's pending bills that would make uh, it easier uh, to organize uh, a, a union and limit the impediments uh, that unions face and workers face, I should say, when they want to organize. So there will be opposition to that. Uh, and again, this is the same basic point. If the Democrats run from that opposition, then they undercut the people, the very people that they say they're in business to help. You know what I'm saying, Miles? And so you lose. That's your base. That'd be like the Republican Party running away from tax breaks for the wealthy. When is that ever going to happen? There's plenty of criticism about that. I've never seen a Republican run away. They run toward it. Uh, and so, Miles, we're really having a, a conversation about on the same theme today. And that is... Uh, that part of the reason the Democrats are in trouble as we had in November is that they're, they don't take strong stands on behalf of just, I don't know, working people, middle-class people, poor people. And so there's no substantive reason that people have, you know, like money in your pocket reason that people have to vote democratic. Now guys like you and me, political junkies we're probably always going to vote you know we've been trained that way you know what i'm saying but not everyone is like you or me you know what i mean and if they don't have a compelling reason to vote if they don't see it right there in front of their face or if they feel rejected by the democratic party at one level it's like you don't want to vote yeah i i feel it you know what i'm saying i feel i start talking about it like you guys are so arrogant in the way in which you just have disdain for people like me and yet I have no choice but to vote for you. But most people won't react like me and still vote anyway. You follow me, Miles? Most people will just walk away and say, well, I'm not voting. So it just doesn't make sense from a policy issue or a public uh, issue. But here's, here's the exact quote, Miles. I, I took it down. A reporter asked Bernie, has Biden fallen short in union support? And Bernie says, quote, yes, he has. And that's what you're getting. I, I can't think, Miles. I'm going to go back. The closest I could think of a incumbent president being challenged uh, by uh, a incumbent Democratic president being challenged by a Democratic senator on issues of inequity and fairness. 
as opposed to, I don't know, foreign policy or what have you, would be uh, Jimmy Carter and Ted Kennedy. And that's all. You weren't even born yet when that was going down. So, you know, I can't think of any in, uh, during the um, Clinton administration. Help me here. You are alive for this. I can't recall any Democratic senator uh, standing up to Bill Clinton's sellout and betrayals of all the things. Can you? Can you think of any of them? I mean, I was not uh, uh, quite as politically active in my <laughs> when I was in my teens, but or even younger. Than you weren't that, even but, a teen, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, Russ Feingold did speak out against some of the you know issues, or I know when he was in the. In the Senate, that might have been like yeah, that was towards the end, uh, and that was also like campaign finance. All right, let's move on to Elon Musk. Everybody gets this question. Uh, I'm going to take a deeper dive with the great uh, leftist Sam Holloway, and this one he's got a ton of things to say. Uh, but uh, just your general thoughts about uh, Elon Musk rounding up <laughs> uh, 45 to 46 million, a billion, sorry, billion with a B dollars to acquire a Twitter uh, banks. Unbelievable. The <laughs> how they think this is a good investment, a good strategic investment. Uh, I, I'm starting to think uh, it, Miles, the banks are just lending the money the way uh, downtown property owners hire uh, Madigan and Burke to handle their uh, property tax appeals. They just want to curry favor with him. I cannot believe any banker would look at this as, oh, this is a great investment. And here's a company that really ha- makes no money. I mean, in terms of sheer profits, I'm going to kick $13 billion over to buy it. Uh, anyway, your thoughts on Elon Musk, the $46 billion acquisition of Twitter. Well, I think it's an example of why we need to have some level of uh, redistribution of wealth in this country, because there's when people are able to collect the amount of uh, personal wealth that someone like Elon Musk has, they um, are able to completely evade any accountability, any democratic control over their, their actions. And um, they're able to operate on a different level than the rest of society because they can treat things like an acquisition over a massive social media uh, channel and outlet like Twitter as a plaything, you know, as a toy. And that seems to be what he is intending to use it as if you look at his recent Twitter feed, I mean, he just posted something today about how since 2008 America has gone down the tubes because it's moved way too far left. I mean, that's just, if you (laughs) objectively look at American politics since 2008 and think the issue is our politics have moved left. I don't know. I mean, that's just such a misreading, I think on any level, I think even Mitch McConnell would agree because (laughs) he would take you know, he would be offended because he knows he's helped to move the country to the right. Um, but yeah, so, and, and but I think that's an example of the kind of thing, you know, wow. like that's what uh, uh, somebody that's worth $260 billion, like Elon Musk, Musk would uh, think because he get, he faces some, you know, pushback when he tries to uh, mistreat his workers, you know, and then there's, there, you know, there's organizing campaigns at Tesla and he's like, oh, the woke mob is after me. Clearly, America has gone off the rails because, you know, of the left wing maniacs, as, as Trump would say, missing out on the fact that that doesn't have anything to do with, you know, how look at look at issues of wealth inequality. That's only uh, gotten much, much worse in recent years. And it's exactly because of people like Elon Musk. Um, that's you know, when we let people get that level of uh, wealth, then um, the people 
only the people that are like have the worst moral cal- calculator are going to be the ones that are going to rise to the top because they're going to be the ones that are going to take all of the risks that will allow them to, you know, benefit. It's almost like a weird, it's like the sociopaths benefit in our current, you know, economic ecosystem more than uh, the rest of us. And it's anti-democratic. So the way to rein that in is by changing um, the distribution of wealth in this country. I don't know. I mean, I think Elon Musk seems like a bad dude and uh, in a lot of ways. And I think he's not going to, I think he's going to get bored of Twitter the same way he, you know, you remember he announced the boring company was going to partner with Rahm Emanuel and build a crazy express train to O'Hare that just never happened. My guess is that much like, I think Elon wants to just hang out on the moon and stuff, you know, and that's his main priority. So I think the Twitter thing is just like a little um, toy for him. So I'm not too worried about like that changing things, although it might, I mean, who knows, we're entering a new, uh, new paradigm when it comes to that. But I think the bigger issue, as I said, is um, this uh, gaping wealth inequality. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, uh, I like to point out as we uh, head out the door from today's show that we talked about two substantive ways that we, we can deal uh, with the unfairness of wealth inequality. One uh, is uh, forgiving student debt, which would go a long way, uh, at least putting money in the pockets of people who don't have $45 billion to buy Twitter. Uh, and then the other one is uh, making it uh less stressful and difficult uh, for workers to uh, organize. And I'll point out, like I always do, we get to workers and unionizing, and I'll use an example. Elon Musk did not buy Twitter without the assistance of lawyers and advisors who are getting paid well to advise him. And I'm sure there's all kinds of tax consequences, Miles, for those banks giving, lending him $13 billion to buy this worthless company and it is pretty worthless in terms of like a, a thing that makes you money. Do you follow what I'm saying? I'm sure they, they got that all figured out, but when workers <laughs> want to effectively hire a representative for themselves, just using that terminology of capitalists by organizing, Oh, that's, uh, that's so unfair. That's going to destroy economy. You remember we talked about this old boy, the one who gives stock advice that nobody with a brain would ever follow. Kramer, remember him from last time you were on the show? So the, I, the other yeah. thing I would just want to say on that is there's also public subsidies. Not only do they have lawyers, but the reason Elon Musk got that rich is because he's got, you know, Tesla's getting all this money from the government, right? And the same thing as Amazon, they're also engaging in union busting and still benefiting from uh, public money the same way Sterling Bay is getting this huge, you know, handout from, from the government. So, you know, when we try to praise the, the wealthy overlords, we forget that we're the ones that actually uh, funded them to begin with. And we'll close where we began. And yet, when Lori Lightfoot proposes in response, I'm not saying she did it out of the goodness of her heart, to Willie Wilson by throwing a relative nickel <laughs> at the poor people or working people in Chicago through a gas card giveaway or a venture card. Oh, my God, the outrage. It's not right. <laughs> she barely gets the votes. and But you're absolutely correct. Tesla is built on government handouts. It's funny. He didn't address that in a tweet when he was talking about uh, 
how the biggest problem America has faced since it's gone too far left. Your company grew. You became the world's richest man during this era. Why are you sobbing? You know who? You know what? The biggest crybaby. I thought the biggest crybaby in America is Steve Kerr and uh, all his little Golden State Warriors. If you touch them, uh uh-uh. Sorry, Steve Kerr. I was unfair to you. Elon Musk is the biggest crybaby in America. Oh, the lefties. I've only became the richest man in the world. All right. We're going to close with your thoughts on the Bulls. People may not realize this. I say it all the time. I was a huge Bulls fan, proving that lefties can be sports fans. And you love the Bulls as much as I do. They looked terrible down the last month of the season. <laughs> they had one great game and one pretty good game in a out of five, otherwise getting blown out in an embarrassing fashion to the dastardly Milwaukee Bucks and their horrifically uh, Grayson Allen. Are you nonetheless optimistic uh, heading into uh, the offseason when you think about your beloved Chicago Bulls? Hope springs eternal when it comes to uh, Chicago sports, because otherwise, I don't know, you know, you, you got to have some faith. And look, I've I've been a Bulls fan through some really dark times, because I know you have, too. And so I can't help feel anything but gratitude for having a fun and exciting season, especially at the beginning. I mean, you know, sports, I think, do do help us to kind of take our attention off of some of the day-to-day and, you know, invest ourselves in really incredible feats of, you know, athletics. And it's fun, you know, and and something that can rally people together. And I think that the this year's Chicago Bulls squad was able to really do that and, and bring some energy to the United Center and to the city that we haven't seen in a long time. Um, and for that, I am, I'm, I'm just thankful and agree with you. It was a pretty atrocious end of the season. We could blame that on injuries, on COVID, on, um, you know, the chemistry just not working out. You know, our prime young player, Patrick Williams, got injured very early in the season. I was at that game against the Knicks where he broke his wrist. It was, uh, it was, it was a sad one, but you know, he's back. He scored 23 points in this game last night, even though they lost, he hit a bunch of threes. I think there's some bright future there. I think once we get the core back, Lonzo Ball obviously needs to get healthy. Zach Levine needs to get knee surgery. Um, I think they'll probably pay him out a supermax contract and um, we'll try to run it back next year and hopefully have better luck with um, injuries and yeah. COVID, all the other stuff that, that, that hit the Bulls. And yeah, I, I mean, I've just been so, I've seen such, you know, ridiculous squads of people that shouldn't even have been like on the G League that were starting <laughs> for the Bulls, you know, throughout the past few years. And it's just, I've had to like sit through those games and just, you know, try to look on the bright side, think through, watch Fred Hoiberg kind of, oh. you know, throw these, you know, campaign into games and stuff. Now Cameron Payne's playing great, but on the Bulls, he was, he was crap. Um, Denzel Valentine, all this. So it's, you know, brighter days i think are uh, ahead for the bulls and i do want to give a shout out like you did before to the chicago sky because they are you know world champions i'm going to their home opener uh against the la sparks uh, at wintrust arena super excited for that oh, i think it's going to be a, a, a trophy uh game where they you know celebrate their their win last year um and so there's there's things to be excited about uh, again when it comes to chicago basketball so for for that i am grateful 
All right. Very good. That uh, has got me all fired up. Uh, DeMar DeRozan essentially said the same thing. Uh, and by the way, many thanks for a great season of DeMar DeRozan. At last night's, uh, when he met the reporters after the Bulls lost, he said he's already looking forward to next year. And I'm like, me too, DeMar. Me too. Uh, so anyway, Miles, thank you very much. Uh, it was a great show today. Some great riffs by, uh, by you. I want to. Go ahead. Before we go, I just want to give a shout out to the Chicago Reader for um, fighting the good fight. I got to say, it was pretty incredible. I, you know, I signed on the letter and I didn't know what was going to happen. I know we've talked about it a little bit privately and stuff and, you know, in the, in the past. But, no, you know, I didn't know where any of this was going to land. And, you know, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole. But, you know, I listened to some of the, your show with Maya earlier this week. And just want to, yeah, I just want to say it's it's so incredible that um, the reader has faced down seeming death so many times in, uh, in, in, in my years and it somehow pulls through and, and this year it was able to do that again. So shout out to all the dedicated staff um, journalists that pulled together to, to make this possible. Yeah, no, and I'll shout out to Philip Montoro, our uh, union leader. Union. <laughs> uh, he did a great job of in my humble opinion of strategizing and keeping the union together. And uh, I really kept my mouth shut on this one. Uh, Miles, you know me. I love to talk. I got opinions. Uh, I just felt that anything I say would and could be used against my beloved reader is somehow or another. Uh, and uh, so I don't know how much the world really cares about this issue. I know that we have a lot of uh, dedicated readers uh, who supported us. So God bless each one of you. I don't know how much anybody cares what, uh, you know, a post uh, analysis, but I may give one uh, when this deal is finally said and done. Cause Lord, Oh Lord, you're right, man. I, it's really your lifetime. It's the lifetime of millennials. I, I, I wrote this, I go in the 21st century, the reader has faced so many crises one after another bankruptcy. I could go on and on nine 11. I mean, all these impacts that have just like, like slammed at the reader at any time. I thought, oh, it's it's out of business. I'm I'm telling my, my kids grew up with this. Up, daddy's about to lose his job, <laughs> and the healthcare, our health insurance is going to go out the window. And somehow, the reader has managed to survive. I always say Danny Solis, the old, the old arm of the 25th Ward, had more lives than anyone in the city of Chicago. But I think the reader may uh, be giving Danny a run for his money. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, and, uh, and, you know, shout out, to, shout out to all the organizing. Shout out to Len Goodman for finally agreeing to the, the sale and everybody and Tracy Bame, obviously, for sticking through all this. It's, it's, it's been a wild ride, and, and, and the reader is still free and uh, freaky. As free and freaky. <laughs> free and freaky, yeah. All right, very good. Miles, you're free and freaky too. Thank you very much for taking the time uh, to come on uh, on the show uh, in these times. Editor, writer, and dear friend of the Ben Jarowski show, uh, Miles Kenfless. And then, as we always point out, proud graduate of Whitney Young High School. We have a lot of. Yeah, they're the Dolphins. <laughs> By the way, Joyce Kenner stepping down. That's a whole other story for another time. As principal, she was principal when Miles was there. Uh, anyway, shout out, uh, Joyce Kenner. All right. Thank you very, very much, Miles. And I also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend. Part of Joy Vault in Illinois without whom the show would be possible. And as Len Goodman, Miles Camp Lanson, and Joyce Kenner will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D, and the D stands for the marvelous. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. <laughs>